We are looking at uh, Genesis this semester, and we're in Genesis chapter 1. And um, it's not on the bulletin, but they've actually, our wizard, technical wizard, has made it so that you can write to J-A-Y at Redeemer Siloam, and you'll actually email me. So if you have questions about the sermon, feel free to email me at J-A-Y at Redeemer Siloam. If you have complaints, then that's Ted at Redeemer Siloam. All right, it's Genesis chapter 1. I'll be starting with the first, uh, the 28th verse. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we think about this passage for a moment tonight. The great God and Father of our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be with us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would hear what you would have us to hear from your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to believe, trust, and love and mouths to speak and proclaim your great work then and now. For that same Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 Well, there were notes, of course, there were pamphlets that had been dropped from airplanes telling him that the war was over. Now, though these notes were written in Japanese, his native tongue, there were grammatical mistakes which served as a clear indication, so he thought, that the calls to come out of the jungle and surrender were part of a plot by the United States to trick him while the war was still going on. And so he stayed in the jungle, which is where he had been told to stay. Days became months. Months became years, and years became decades. And so it was that a 20-something soldier in the Imperial Japanese Army entered the jungles of Lubang Island in the Philippines in 1945, but only came out in 19. 74. He had been told never to surrender. Never. He had been told, if necessary, to live off the land. And that's just what he did. Coconuts and bananas. Bananas and coconuts. Occasionally he would raid villages below and <clears throat> appropriate things for his war cause. They tried to capture him, of course. I even read that they had a manhunt 
with thousands of people scouring the jungle looking for him. But he was told never to surrender, so he evaded everyone for decades. In fact, Hiro Onoda, that's his name, he only came out, he said this hippie boy came and found him in the jungle. And he said that he was going to wage war forever because, you know, his commanding officer had told him never surrender. And so this, uh, this guy in the 1970s went back to Japan, found his old, Hiro Onoda's old commanding officer, and who, of course, had long retired from the army. I think he was a bookseller or something back home in Japan. But persuaded him to go to the Philippines, to Lebong Island, so that he could give Hiro Onoda the command to come out of the jungle. He did. And so, Hiro Onoda came out of the jungle with what was left of his dress uniform, carrying his sword and his still-functioning, polished-to-perfection Arisaka Type 99 rifle. He'd lived off the land. He mended his clothes with fibers from jungle plants. He brushed his teeth with palm tree fiber. And he used palm oil to oil his rifle. And Hiro Onoda, as best as I know, I checked yesterday, as best as I know, he is still alive today at age 91, marvelously healthy. There's a YouTube video of him as a younger man at a mere 88 years old, uh, making his way across a rope suspended between two trees in a demonstration for school children. So it's apparently very healthy to be a Japanese holdout from World War II. In fact, during his 29 years in the jungle, he only had fever twice, and he came out with perfectly immaculate teeth, no cavities. Now, you may be wondering where I'm going with all this. Is the message tonight that living in the jungle is the way to have a, a long and healthy life? No. But it is to say that even though we live in a fallen world, this earth is still rich and full in its provisions. We have a sense of what Eden was like before the fall, when we see creation effortlessly giving forth its bounty. Blackberry bushes just growing by themselves, crab apple trees, fields of lavender. We see a glimpse of what verse 29 must have been like when God gives Adam and Eve food. Man was rich before he was born, said one commentator, and rightly so. God makes plants on one day in order to give them to his creation on another. He knows what people made in his image need. And he provides for them. And in the time we have tonight, I'd like, like to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 31, under two main headings. Two simple, straightforward headings. First, God seeks our joy. And second, God seeks his glory. So our joy 
and his glory. First, God seeks our joy. Look at verse 28. God blesses them. He, he wants them to be fruitful and multiply. He wants them to have families. And he gives them food, verse 29. And food that they can acquire through very little effort on their own. It's just bountiful. But most importantly of all, we see that God seeks their joy by having a relationship. In verses 29 to 30, God talks to them. He has fellowship with them. So let's quickly think about, about all these things, each in its turn. So verse 29, he starts with food. Let's start with food. Now, we mustn't worry about food, right? Jesus tells us not to worry about what we're going to eat. But notice that when Jesus tells us not to worry about what we're going to eat in Matthew chapter 6, it's not because food isn't important. Of course it is. We are finite creatures and we need food to survive. And Jesus doesn't tell us not to worry about food because it's plentiful and easy to get, as plentiful as it was in the garden. Oh no, we live in a fallen world, don't we? And there are times when it's very hard to get food. Instead, Jesus commands us not to worry about food because he says your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Our Heavenly Father knows that we need food and drink and clothing, that we need Him to provide for us, and He does. So it's no wonder that God provides food for Adam and Eve in the garden. After all, He provides food for us, and we're wicked. Is it any wonder that he cares for them after calling them good? So God wants our joy, and in wanting our joy, he feeds us. But there's more, isn't there? Because he doesn't just feed us, he blesses us, and he gives us families. He wants us to flourish. In preparing for this sermon, I was struck with how in many of the other days, it'll say, uh, bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, according to their kinds, birds and fish according to their kinds. That there's so many different kinds of fish. There are so many different kinds of birds. And uh, I looked it up, and there are about 32,000 species of fish today, 10,000 bird species, and the variety uh, that exists between all these different species of fish and bird is astonishing. So uh, the dwarf pygmy goby is a fish. And it's about one-third of an inch long, so it's a tiny little guy. Well, a great white shark is also a fish. But it's a little bigger, isn't it? It's 19-something feet longer thousands of pounds heavier, but they're all fish. Think about birds. An ostrich is nine feet tall. It's taller than I am, taller than anybody in the room. But so too is a, a and it's a bird. But a bee hummingbird, the little guy is just a couple inches long. He's still a bird too. God made many different kinds of fish 
He made many different kinds of birds, but he only made two of us. He only made two. And he tells us, appropriately, given that there are only two of us at the start, to have babies. And guess what? We can. Now, only at the appropriate time, only at the appropriate time, but unlike an ostrich and a bee hummingbird, a Japanese man can marry an English woman and they can have children together. Someone from Africa can marry someone from Scandinavia and they can have kids. And, and we should always think that these interracial marriages are beautiful pictures of the gospel, of how Jesus overcomes the, uh, the hatred that people have with each other. But it's also, isn't it? It's also a return to creation. To the fact that they're just two. That independent of our differences, we are all just so many distant cousins. Well, it was 1963. In August, the 28th. 50 years ago, this past summer. Now, Hiro Onoda was still hiding out in his jungles in the Philippines, but let's not think about him for a moment. Let's lift our eyes to the United States, where a minister of the gospel is about to speak. 1963, he begins, I'm happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. And he continues later, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Why would he ever say that? Because, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, because now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. And he's right. We're all God's children. And, and he didn't make it up, right? He, he, Dr. King just didn't make it up. And in fact, there's a letter, uh, apparently a, a private wrote to Dr. King almost a decade before the march in Washington, asking him why he thought the Bible was against segregation. And the letter's a fascinating one because Dr. King writes him back. In his first appeal was to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, where Paul says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And Paul's referring, of course, to Genesis chapter 1. And our pastor, Ted Wanger, was right to remind us last week that how God made us, he just made two of us, is a call to banish racism and the fear of other people from our hearts. And God wants this humanity to flourish, right? That's what we see in verse 28. 
And that's why, that's why we fight against abortion and China's one-child policy. That's why we stand against an American materialism that tells women never to have children so that they can, have, they can advance their career and get, have better vacations and larger homes. Because God wants humanity to flourish. He wants us to grow. This verse also reminds us that though children can be very hard work, they are also our joy. You kids, you kids in the congregation, listen up. You are a precious answer to your parents' prayers. When they look at you, they feel God's pleasure. They know His blessing. And there's more, isn't there? God's blessed us by giving us food, by giving us a family, both biological and spiritual. He, and, and He's uh, blessed us with many things. But then we also see in this passage in verse 28 that we're to fill the earth, but we're also to subdue it and have dominion over it. God gives us a special authority, a unique privilege over the world that he has made. God supplies us with the energy to exert mastery over the world. Now, sometimes we don't exert that mastery well, but you ever, have you ever noticed how when we talk about the ill effects of something that we do, like pollution or deforestation, there's no other solution than a human solution proposed. We don't wait for the squirrels to gather at their council fires to tell us what, what's going to happen or how they're going to solve the problem. We don't wait for the polar bear to solve the problem of the melting ice cap, or I just read this past week, its vast expansion. Whatever, whatever we're doing. It's true, I just read it this week. So it must be true. So if there's an environmental problem to tackle, even one that we have caused, we assume that it's up to us to take care of it. And now we mustn't doubt the Lord's providence, his sovereign control over everything. We still, I think, rightly see the activities that God has given us to do as activities that are appropriate for the kinds of thing that we are made in his image. So whether cleaning up an oil spill or brushing a child's teeth at night, and these activities are not as unrelated as they may sound, we should still see our work as being faith, a faithful exercise of the task that God has given us to do. And, and there's something, God wants our joy, and most of all, the way that he gives us joy is he gives us himself. He blesses Adam and Eve. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He gives them mastery over the world. But then he talks to them. Have you noticed this? In verses 28 and 29, he talks to them about how he cares for them. And then he invites them into a conversation about not only how he cares for them, but, but he says, hey, look, 
look at how I'm caring for all the other animals. They get to hear God's wise ordering, his governing of the world from God himself. And it's the most normal thing in the world for someone made in God's image to have a relationship with God, to talk to God, to know Him intimately. So God cares for the sparrows. He looks out for the eagles. He knows just what the barred owl needs. And yet, He talks to our parents. He calls them good because they were. And so they have no fear before a holy God. So that's the first point. God seeks humanity's joy. There's a second point, and that is that God seeks his glory. He seeks his glory because God is glorified in his creation. Now every day, as you know, God saw that it was good. At the end of every day, we have this refrain, God saw that it was good. But here, on the very last day, on the uh, last day of creation, sixth day, we have verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Why is it now very good, whereas previously it was just good? Well, for one thing, I think it's because now God has finished his work. The next verse is in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And so I think it's appropriate that looking out over his world, now complete, God would say, yes, that's very good. I also think, though, that it's very good because now he's not looking at a specific thing like fish and birds or creepy crawly things, but he's looking at the totality of it, right? So the first thing is that he's finished his work. The second is he's looking at it. It says uh, God saw everything that he made. So now he's stepping back and looking at everything. But finally, notice how the declaration that it's very good follows his uh, conversation with Adam and Eve in verses 29 and 30 about how God is providing for the created animals and for humanity. So here I think he's not just looking at everything completely, though he is. He's also looking at how everything is interconnected. The sun shines on the well-watered clover that grows and the little bunnies come and nibble on it. The rich, plump strawberries are warmed by an afternoon's heat, just waiting for someone's hand. God has arranged everything to work together in wonderful harmony. And it's all the more beautiful because each part is perfectly coordinated with the whole. So that the whole is more glorious than the sum of all its parts. Take the following example. On, on Christmas Eve, a uh, single chorister, so a little boy, 
walks out into King's College, Cambridge, the, the chapel of King's College, Cambridge. And a single lone voice sings the first stanza of Once in Royal David's City. It's a lone uh, boy singing. And it's broadcast nationally and internationally on the BBC. Well, the boy finishes the first stanza all by himself. And then there's a pause of about two seconds. And then the entire choir of King's College, Cambridge, joins the boy singing. And it's wonderful. There's so many different notes. And yet the notes all fit together. Well, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, the way that the ferns grew to feed the deer in the Garden of Eden was even more glorious. The sun that shone on the berries to give food to the black bears, even more magnificent. Well, why? Because in the garden, God's harmonious provision for his whole creation was so great and so mesmerizing that God looked out and said, now that's very good. By contrast, those boys in England singing in the chapel, King's College, Cambridge, well, they're precious and they're talented, but they are sinners, every single one of them. Why does he get to sing the solo? One chorister thinks, I bet I look marvelous on the television, says another. Well, their voices are pretty, but their hearts are dark. God doesn't look at them and see goodness. Well, and they're not alone, are they? Because if we're honest tonight, God looks at our hearts and they're dark too. Well, how different the Garden of Eden. Everything was glorious and everything was good. Everything worked as it should individually. The plants grew, the moon came up on time, and everything worked together to make it even better. Well, watered plants grew by the light of the sun to feed creatures great and small. It was all very good. And the designer of such a world, in fact, the creator of such a world out of nothing, appropriately deserves honor and respect. God makes only good things, and he makes them fit well together. We ought to read Genesis 1 and go, wow, look what our God can do. Isn't he marvelous? He's amazing. Now, you may be thinking out there that, uh, well, that's all well and good, Jay, you say to yourself. But this is, after, after all, it's Genesis 1. And it, it does go downhill from there, doesn't it? The fall has ruined everything. And of course, things do go downhill, that's true. But guess what? Though the fall has changed many things, it still has not changed God's desire for our good and his glory. 
And that's why you're in church tonight. Because God is seeking you. Even if you're not seeking Him. If you fast forward to the New Testament, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells His disciples, Don't be worried. Don't be troubled about this world. And why? Because, He tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is that if Jesus wants to prepare a place for us, it's going to be magnificent. There will be plenty of food. We'll be with the family of God. But most of all, we'll get Him. We'll be with Him, our Lord Jesus. So we need not fear death. Because Jesus promises to come to us, to take us, to be with him forever. God desires our joy. And if God desires our joy, we must have it. We must. Because he can do the work. And God rightly, in bringing us joy, seeks the glory of the one who most deserves it. That is himself. God finds glory by marvelously working everything together for our good. And it's so amazing that the Apostle Peter tells us that even angels long to look into these things. And the Apostle Paul tells us that the church is the theater of God's glory. That rulers and authorities in heavenly places look at the church and see God's wisdom. They see God's wisdom. And they see our Lord Jesus dying for us to bring us to himself for our joy. And why does he do that? It's because he loves us. He loves us. And so he did it for God's glory and for our joy. So here we are in Genesis 1. And if we read the Bible forward, things get dark, don't they? Our parents, our first parents fall. And then we have the Old Testament church in Israel wandering about. God blesses them and rescues them. And what do they do? They turn from him and sin yet again. And then, of course, the darkest moment of all is the crucifixion of the Son of God, the brutal killing of the Son of God between two thieves. Now, does all this darkness mean that, on the contrary... Ultimately, God's not glorified in creation. Does all the darkness mean that ultimately it's just creation ruined? No, far from it. As uh, in the words of uh, one of our children's Bibles that we read, because of the work of Jesus, God makes all the sad things of the world come Untrue. And that's not to say that there's not sin and pain 
and evil and suffering, they're real. They're there. And our Lord Jesus is no stranger to these things. But it is to say that God is so powerful that he uses even wicked men acting against him from hatred of him to be punished by him. He uses even them to achieve his purposes. That's how powerful God is. If you act against him, that's a mistake. But fear not. He will be gloried. He will be glorified, ultimately, in his great rescue of those that trust in Jesus. And so tonight we can say to each other, take heart. The world is hard. But our glorious Lord Jesus has overcome. And right here in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we see God look out on the world that he has made and he says it's very good. And the day is coming when he will look again on the world that he has remade and he will say it is very good. And friends, because of Jesus, God will look at you and God will say, because of Jesus, he will look at you when you die and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's good news indeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that it's a never failing, always and forever love. Thank you that you delight to give yourself to us. Lord, we pray that we would have great confidence in the fears, troubles, and trials of this life, that our Lord Jesus does all things well. To him alone we praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Amen.